Amen. You can be seated this morning. You can open up your copy of Scripture to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking there, God's Word, this morning. Taking a little bit of break from the Gospel of John um, uh, this week and um, the following week as well. So um, we'll get to talk about um, some things that um, are very important to us as we begin this new year. And as many of you know, what happens around this time is that many people will begin to make New Year's resolutions, right? And today they'll kind of begin those resolutions, those things, whether they do it formally with a list or informally, everybody kind of has this sense of a new beginning, a new start, whether it's to start a better habit or to stop maybe a bad nagging habit that has taken over. It's a way that we kind of seek to improve our lives and kind of work toward that. And that's a good thing, right? It's a fresh start. It's a good thing to kind of have a new year, begin these new um, resolutions, and there's nothing wrong with that. I know for myself, you know, I want to try to eat healthier. I want to try to exercise more, maybe spend less time on my phone. Those are all good things. But I was thinking that as we begin this new year as a church, there's one thing that should sort of be at the forefront of our mind, one thing that we should, that should rise above all others, one desire, one focus that sort of grips us, and that is the worship of the triune God, right? It's the worship of God. That should be the thing more than any other resolution we have this year. That should be the thing that grips us, the giving of honor and praise that is due to the name of God, the right-fitting, delightful response of God's creatures to Him for who He is as Creator, for Redeemer, and ultimately the consummator of all things. And as one person said, worship is actually the most important thing that you will ever do in your life. Worship is the most important thing you will ever do in your life. But I think if we're honest... Oftentimes, worship can feel very dull and dry, right? We can sometimes quickly become callous to what worship is. Maybe we can become disengaged. Maybe if you have children, distracted. <laughs> we can become distracted in worship. We can even become, if we're honest, bored sometimes, you know? It can become this thing that we take it or leave it. You know, it's nice to have, but if we don't, um, it's no big deal. And we can tend to look at it, I think, in a very kind of human, earthly, horizontal way. But my hope this morning is that we will see in God's Word the glorious, heavenly, cosmic reality of what's going on when God's people gather together to worship Him. That it is actually a supernatural event. That when God's people gather on the Lord's day to worship Him as He has commanded, God meets with His people in a special way. It is here where God speaks to us from His Word. It is here where we hear from the living God. Bruce Hollister liked to say, it's where heaven touches earth. <laughs> it's where heaven touches earth. It's where we are changed, where we are conformed to the image of Christ, where Christ ministers to His people by the power of the Spirit because of His finished work. When God's people together in His name in public worship. And so what we're going to see this morning is, first of all, our great need for the public worship of God. We're going to look at the only 
means of access we have to God, namely Christ. And thirdly, we'll look at the heavenly reality of our worship. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word. So we'll be looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 24. And we see here the author to Hebrews set up a contrast between the earthly, typical Mount Zion and the heavenly fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion. We read these things. This is the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the glorious heavenly realities that it opens up to us that nature day and night pours forth speech. It tells us that there is a God, that He is worthy of our worship, but it is Scripture alone that reveals to us by special revelation what is true, what is, what is real, what is um, how we are to worship You, and the glorious heavenly realities that we are dependent upon Your Word to see and believe. And so we pray this morning that as we look to Scripture, you would give us an eye to heaven, you would give us ears to hear your word and believe it, and you would help us this morning to see the glory of worship and what you have given for us in your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as Daryl sort of alluded to this morning, we see here in the book of Hebrews The author is laboring to show us the supremacy of Christ and of the new covenant. That in this, it's really a a sermon that's recorded for us. In this great sermon, recorded for us in Holy Scripture, we see God pointing His people, who would presumably be gathered together in worship on on Sunday, to the glory and supremacy of new covenant worship that God's people are to worship Him. They're not to neglect meeting together, as we read this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, but to earnestly and expectantly attend the corporate worship of God. But what we see here in chapter 12 is the how and the why this is possible. In one sense, the veil is sort of pulled back. The heavenly realities of what is going on in the worship of God's people is sort of revealed. 
And in chapter 12, as we just read, we see the glorious, heavenly, cosmic realities of what is going on when God's people gather together to worship Him. And this is contrasted to Mount Sinai, the earthly, physical mountain of worship in the Old Covenant. We see now that God's people worship not at an earthly mountain, right? We're not going to an earthly mountain, but we find that we are actually worshiping at the heavenly one, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. What does verse 22 there say? It doesn't say you are going to come to. It says the believer in Christ has come to, has come to the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. There's this already not yet reality that is being conveyed in the scripture. But the, the question that's maybe most pressing this morning is how, how is this possible? What does this mean? Why is this so important that the author would end his book in this way? And so this brings us to our first point this morning, the mountain of God, the mountain of God. We're going to look at this holy mountain of God. So as we've said, when we come to worship, we are to come to the worship of God expecting great things from Him, right? We're to come to public worship, not kind of just saying, oh, I hope something good happens, but we're to come expecting God to move and change us, right? That's why we come. It's where we hear God's Word. It's where we hear the Gospel. It's where we are changed, And what's amazing is, as you look at the New Testament, in fact, we see that in Scripture, there's this great promise of our Lord that where two or three are gathered together in His name, He is in the midst of them. Where two or three are gathered in His name, He is in the midst of them. He is gathered among them. We read this about this in Matthew chapter 18. Many of us are familiar with this verse. You've probably heard it quoted many times. But I think what's often misunderstood about this text is the context in which Jesus says these words. It's not the context of individual meeting together at a coffee shop, but the context is actually the public gathering of the church. Jesus had just talked about this in the previous verses. So this context is that is what Jesus is really saying is that when the church is gathered in Christ's name, He has promised to be present in a special way. And this is what I like to call the special ecclesiastical presence of the triune God, promised by Christ as He meets with His covenant people on the Lord's day. Where two or three are gathered in His name, there He is in the midst of them. Now this idea might kind of sound odd to us. It might even sound foreign in some ways. And I think what most people think is, isn't God omnipresent, right? Isn't He everywhere present? Even our children know this from the catechism, right? The answer is, okay, the question is, okay, what is God? He is spirit. Where is God? I thought one of them might say it. Everywhere, (laughs) right? Where is God? He's everywhere, He can't be contained. He's not a corporeal being. He is infinite. He is spirit, and he cannot be contained. He is omnipresent, everywhere present. So how can God dwell in a special way with his people? What does this mean? How is this possible? But we see that actually very early in the scripture that 
we see an example of this, that God manifests, manifests His presence in a special way in the Garden of Eden. God manifests His presence in a special way in the Garden of Eden, this holy garden temple. And what's really interesting is that when we go to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 28, the prophet tells us that this this garden is not only pictured as a holy temple, a holy dwelling place of the Lord in a special way, we're also told that it's a mountain. That the Garden of Eden was actually a mountain. In Ezekiel 28, we find that this is called, Eden is referred to as the mountain of God, the original Mount Zion, this special dwelling place of the Lord among His people on the earth. In the second chapter of the Bible, we see this reality conveyed to us. So within the first couple verses of the Bible, we have a holy mountain temple where God dwells in His glory in a special way among His gathered people. An earthly picture or replica of God's heavenly temple dwelling in the highest heavens. So within the first and second chapter of the Bible, we see this idea presented to us that God dwells in a special way with His people when they gather together. And even though Adam and Eve will sin in the next chapter, right? We talked about that last week. They will break the covenant. They will be exiled from this holy mountain temple because of their sin, because of their disobedience. They broke the covenant. They lost their communion and fellowship with God. They're kicked out of the garden, right? Even though that is true, what the rest of the Bible is going to show us is how God is going to bring back that fellowship and communion He once had. How is God going to bring His people back into fellowship with Him? How is He going to make a way for them to enter His holy presence? Because of sin, they can't come into the garden, right? Because the garden was where God's holiness dwells, they can't be there. So the rest of the Scripture is how is God going to do this? And what's so amazing about the Bible, this is why I love the Scriptures, is that God uses mountains to show us this. God uses the imagery of mountains to show us this, that mountains in Scripture are a picture of where God meets with His people. Mountains in Scripture are where God meets with His people. The designated place where God's people are to not only assemble together, but then to ascend the mountain into the special presence of God. A visible picture. If you think about it, a mountain is a sense, is a visible picture of earth kind of piercing heaven. A symbol of access to God's presence. And we see this in the Garden of Eden, but we also see it throughout Scripture. Where does the Ark of Noah land? on a mountain. <laughs> There's many different examples that we could go to in Scripture. God meets with His people on mountains. He gathers them together to worship Him. But we see that because of sin and under the curse of the law, these meetings are not always happy, joyous events. In fact, what we see in our passage this morning is that they're actually quite terrifying that even Moses, who was the mediator of the Old Covenant, says in our passage, I tremble with fear. That because of God's holiness and the sinfulness of the people, 
God's fiery presence and the trumpeting voice terrify the people under the law, right? They are terrifying to those in their sin, and they cannot even draw near to this holy mountain because of the holiness of God. To even touch the mountain is a pronouncement of certain death. Only Moses can ascend this holy mountain of Sinai. And as you go further in the scriptures, we come to the holy temple of in, found in Mount Zion where the temple is built and only the high priest once a year can enter the holy of holies in the earthly Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so we see very clearly that not only are these events covered in the holiness of God, but we see that a mediator is necessary in order to enter God's holy presence. And so all of this that's happening in the Old Testament is a earthly picture of the reality under sin. That because of our sin, we cannot enter God's safe presence in and of ourselves. We cannot ascend the mountain of the Lord. Because of our uncleanliness, as we read in Psalm 24, we cannot climb God's holy hill. We cannot do enough good works in order to merit salvation. And the picture that the Old Testament paints is that we need someone to represent us before God. We need someone to mediate. We need someone to stand before us so that we can enter God's safe presence. But the question that the Old Testament asks is this, how are God's people going to enter His holy presence? How is God going to bring back His people into fellowship and communion with Him that they had in the garden but lost because of sin? Who is able to ascend the mountain, the holy and righteous hill of the Lord? How can we enter the holy place of worship of the triune God? How are God's people going to be restored to peace with God where there was only um, wrath and curse? And the answer this morning is Christ. (laughs) The answer this morning is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. That as we come to the New Testament, we see that the only way into God's holy presence, the only way back into communion and fellowship with our Creator, the only way that we can enter the heavenly, holy Mount Zion is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can come before a holy God. This is how we meet with God. Not through animal sacrifices, not through our good works, not through gritting our teeth, but the blood of the perfect Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. And we read about this in our assurance of pardon this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain of His flesh, And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Where they couldn't draw near to the mountain, 
we are able to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. What do we see here? We can have joy in the presence of a holy God. We can have confidence. We can have assurance as we approach His throne of grace that Christ alone has ascended that heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly holy hill of the Lord. By His perfect life and His perfect death, He alone was the one that had clean hands and a pure heart. He alone was the one that could ascend God's holy hill. And by His perfect sacrifice, what do we read in Hebrews? That He alone has obtained access to God for His people by means, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of His own blood. So this morning we can have joy where before there was only fear and trembling. We can have confidence to enter God's holy presence because Christ's sprinkled blood speaks a better word. We can have assurance this morning because our conscience has been truly purified to come before a holy God in worship. This is an amazing thing to think about. In and of ourselves, we could not come before God in this way, but because of what Christ has done in His finished work, we can. And I think it's here that we see the Scripture pointing us to the upward trajectory of our worship. Our worship is not earthly. It is heavenly. And that brings us to our third point this morning, the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem. That what was foreshadowed in the old covenant finds its fulfillment in the new. What was pictured by the gathering of God's people on the earthly Mount Zion is fulfilled in the church of Christ the people of God gathered together in the heavenly Mount Zion. What was promised in the old is brought to fulfillment in the new. And this is why the author to the book of Hebrews can say, you have come. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. That when God's people gather for corporate worship on the Lord's day, our worship is actually happening in heaven. Our worship is actually happening in heaven. That by this mysterious work of the Spirit, our praises enter the heavenly Jerusalem, and we saw this morning that God is present with us. It's where, as Bruce would say, heaven touches earth, where we are changed, where we are conformed to the image of of Christ, where our faith is strengthened as we behold Christ in the gospel. This is the glorious, heavenly, cosmic reality of what is going on when we gather this morning, right? This is what's happening, and we don't see it. I heard somebody say, if you could take the lid off a church service and see what was happening in heaven, none of us would be bored. And so we can see And what the author is trying to show us is that there's nothing boring about our worship. There's nothing mundane or dull when we gather together to worship God. And so the application this morning is that we see how this changes how we see public worship, how we see 
the worship of God. So three things to look at this morning. The first is this. We see here the true glory of Sunday gatherings. We see here the true glory of Sunday gatherings. That it is here where God has promised to meet with His people in a special way, right? He's promised to meet with His people in a special way. It is here where we hear the Word proclaimed each week, where we confess our sins, where we confess our faith, where we are assured of God's pardon, where we sing praises to Him, where we worship Him, where we pray and partake of the Lord's Supper. It is here where God promises to be present with us in a special way. This is a glorious thing. This is the true glory of Sunday worship. But the second thing that I want us to see this morning is the primacy of public worship, the primacy of public worship. That our confession is clear that we are to worship God everywhere and at all times, right? We are to worship God everywhere and at all times, Everything we do, in a sense, is to be an act of worship, right? We're called to do all to the glory of God, whether that's privately, right, or individually as we maybe pray each day, as we study God's Word, or listen to Scripture in daily devotion, maybe reflecting on the truths of Scripture, or simply trusting in Christ and seeking to live for Him. So we're called to worship God privately, individually, As our confession says, we're called to worship God in our families. If you have a family, we're called to worship God in our families. That maybe it's praying together before meals. Maybe it's praying before we put our kids to sleep. We also see in Scripture the need for family worship, right? Seeking to gather together as a family and set aside a time of reading, prayer, and singing to the Lord that this in one sense is probably the second best thing we can do for our children outside of bringing them to worship is to train them to listen attentively to God's Word and instruct them in the things of God, to train up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I think what's so hard about this idea of family worship sometimes is I think that we're almost too hard on ourselves, right? We're too hard on ourselves. We're either not hard enough or we're too hard on ourselves. We sort of beat ourselves up and say, well, if I can't do it perfectly, then I just won't do it at all, right? Or if the kids are screaming, then we'll just, it's not, your kids are going to scream. Your kids are going to, they're going to be crazy. They're going to be kids most of the time. And so what we're doing is we're seeking to train them to sit and listen to God's word. This will not only help them on Sundays, but it will show them the importance of listening to God's word, praying together, and um, singing to the Lord, One thing I try to remind our kids of, usually it's right before we get to church each Sunday, is why are we going to church? And I say, it's to worship God. And they used to say, so we can play with our friends or so we can get a donut, right? That was kind of the peak of Sunday. But it's training them to say, no, that why we come together is those things are great to play with our friends and eat donuts. (laughs) But the reason we come is to worship God. And then I would kind of follow up is how do we worship God? And I try not to make lists for kids any bigger than three things. And I would say to listen to God's word, to pray, and to sing to him. And so 
um, however we can do that, we should in family worship. Maybe it's reading a short passage. Maybe it's saying a short prayer on the way to work. Maybe it's singing just the doxology before we go to bed. Any way that we can um, train up our children and worship as a family is a good thing. But we see above all these things the importance of public worship. The importance and primacy and priority of the corporate worship of God. The public gathering of God's people, what we call the church. That the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It is the assembly. If you've ever heard people say, I'm going to go and do church. It's like, it's not a verb. It's a, it's a gathering of people. It is an assembly. That on the Lord's day, it is where God promises to meet with His people by His Word and Spirit through the ordinary means of grace, to be present with His people in a special way. And that because, this is, this is very important, it is because it is in this assembly that we find in Scripture that we are actually worshiping in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the heavenly Mount Zion. We find here the spiritual nature of our worship. That what was pictured in the old is fulfilled in the new. God's people under God's rule in God's house on God's holy mountain. (laughs) That's what we're doing when we gather together in worship. God's people under God's rule in the house of the Lord worshiping on his mountain, the heavenly Mount Zion, only made possible by the person and work of Christ. Psalm 87 verse 2 says this, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. What this is saying is God has promised to meet with his people in a special way when they gather together to worship him. And I think what makes this so hard for us is sort of the pietistic, individualistic culture that we find ourselves in, the religious culture that we find ourselves in, where private devotion trumps corporate worship, right? Private devotion trumps corporate worship. Personal piety and experience excludes assembling together. It's, I'd rather you know, have my own personal experience than come together to worship the Lord. But in fact, for many churches, sadly, sometimes Sunday worship is sort of seen as a footnote to their own religious, personal piety and growth. But what we've seen in our passage this morning is that public worship is actually the clearest and closest vision we have of heaven. Because heaven is not going to be us in a room by ourselves. Heaven is going to be God's people gathered together, worshiping Him. And so when we do that on Sundays, it is the closest and clearest vision we have of heaven. And you might say, Kendall, my kids are screaming. I'm tired. This doesn't feel like heaven. (laughs) That's because it's not yet heaven. It is a vision of heaven. Or as one Puritan said, public worship is the nearest resemblance of heaven itself. It's the nearest resemblance. Public worship is the nearest resemblance of heaven itself. Why? Because it is here God has promised to be present with us. Where His corporate body is gathered together 
praising their Savior. Because it is here where we worship in the heavenly Mount Zion. Our worship is no longer dependent on the place of our worship, but on the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we see, finally, we've seen the true glory of Sunday gatherings. We've seen the primacy of public worship. And finally, we see the supremacy of new covenant worship. The supremacy of new covenant worship. That where under the old covenant, they were under the yoke and and bondage of the ceremonial law in Christ, we've been freed from the ceremonial law, from the burden and weight. And we now, as we read in Hebrews, have boldness to approach the throne of grace and draw near to God where before was only the promise of death. And so we're reminded that even here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, even in our simple worship services, when we meet together through the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that our worship is heavenly. It's cosmic. It's glorious. God hears the praises of His people because of what Christ has done. It is here that we are changed, as Corinthians says, from one degree of glory to the next as we behold Christ and Him crucified in the gospel. And so in one sense, this makes our simple worship service a great and glorious thing. And I wanted to close this morning with what John tells us in the book of Revelation, we see at the end of all things that what was not yet, what is not yet now, has come to its final consummation and fulfillment. In Revelation 21, we read John say these words, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. We see there at the end of all things that the holy mountain of God where there is no temple because it is God's people, the living stones built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. It is there where we will live forever with God and worship Him on His great mountain, the holy city, Jerusalem, the heavenly new earth. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace and mercy. We thank You for Your church that You have instituted and You have gathered together Your people to worship You, to be changed, to grow in their faith and assurance, to confess their sins, to come together as brothers and sisters made new by the work of Your Spirit, and to preserve us to the end so that we might be with You forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray this morning that you would give us this vision of what is happening here in a simple worship service is actually a glorious cosmic reality of the worship and praises of the triune God happening in heaven. Help us this morning, Lord, to have faith and trust in what is 
um, what is true, what have you have revealed to us in your word, that we have in Christ the only access to a holy God, being made pure by the sprinkled blood of Christ, that this morning we would come before you with joy, with confidence, and full assurance that even though our sins are great, our Savior is greater. We thank you for this work that you have done in your mercy and grace. Help us to trust in Christ this morning and by the power of your Spirit, accept the praises of your people as we glorify you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.